be in Ecclesiastes chapter 5 this morning, and we'll be reading verses 1 through 7. That's on page 555, if you're using one of the Bibles provided. Ecclesiastes 5, 1 through 7. It says, Guard your steps when you go to the house of God. To draw near to listen is better than to offer the sacrifice of fools, for they do not know that they are doing evil. Be not rash with your mouth, nor let your heart be hasty to utter a word before God, for God is in heaven and you are on earth. Therefore, let your words be few. For a dream comes with much busyness and a fool's voice with many words. When you vow a vow to God, do not delay paying it, for he has no pleasure in fools. Pay what you vow. It is better better that you should not vow than that you should vow and not pay. Let not your mouth lead you into sin, and do not say before the messenger that it was a mistake. Why should God be angry at your voice and destroy the work of your hands? For when dreams increase and words grow many, there is vanity, but God is the one you must fear. This is the word of the Lord. Well, those of you who are familiar with the author Stephen King know that he must not be scared of very much. In order for him to write what he writes on a consistent basis, you would think that the man lives without fear. But in a 2008 interview with Citizen Magazine, he said he talks about something that does scare him. He says, I'm not a vampire type when somebody shows me a cross, but organized religion gives me the creeps. And Stephen King and God have something in common, because religion gives God the creeps too. Let's pray. Father, we come to you this morning and ask that you would bless your word as I attempt to open it up for us and preach it. Who can preach the never-changing, infallible, inerrant, for all times, eternal word of God. Father, it's amazing that we get this privilege now to hear from you. You have recorded for us in your book what you would have us to hear this morning in this book of Ecclesiastes, and we ask that you would take it and that you would use it in our lives for great, great spiritual good. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Religion gives God the creeps. Religion's not the answer in and of itself to the problems that we meet in the world. The problems that Solomon's been talking about the last several weeks, whether those problems be personal problems having to do with ourselves or interpersonal problems having to do with relationships, Solomon's talked about both of them. He's talked about the personal pursuits of wisdom and pleasure and achievement and work 
and those are empty. And he's shown the interpersonal problems of injustice and oppression and envy and loneliness. And those two are empty. And when we encounter the emptiness of life on a personal level and on an interpersonal level, oftentimes that can lead a person to get a little religious. But Solomon wants to caution us this morning that religion itself can be an empty pursuit. He stresses here in chapter 5, verses 1 through 7, that pursuing religion apart from pursuing God, like so many other things that he's mentioned already, can be utterly and absolutely meaningless. Let's just be very clear. Not every seeking of religion is a seeking of God. It is completely possible And in fact, done by millions of people in the world to pursue religious activity, religious devotion, religious behavior without pursuing God. Loving religion, devoting ourselves to religion is not the same as loving God and devoting ourselves to God. He wants us, He wants our hearts. He does not want superficial religiosity. And the purpose of Ecclesiastes is not to drive us to be religious. It's to drive us to God himself. Here's what one writer said. A person can love religion like anything else in life. Sports, science, stamp collecting. I don't know who who likes that, but I'm sure they're out there. One can love it for its own sake without relation to God or the world of life. Religion fascinates. It's entertaining. It has everything that's sought after by a certain type of person. Religion has aesthetics and mystery and the sacred and spiritual experience. But that kind of religion is not necessarily faith. Unless we think the Christian environment or the Christian world is excluded from that, we can do the exact same things. We can show up. We can go through the motions. We can mouth the words. We can pray the prayers. We can do a little meet and greet, and then we're out of here. And we're done. And that's a waste of time, both of yours and of God's. Phil Riken says, Solomon is speaking to just about everyone who ever goes to church. His exhortations are for people who do go to church, but sometimes find it hard to pay attention, whose thoughts wander when they pray, and who are full of good intentions about serving God, but have trouble following through. Who does that not describe? (laughs) Including the person preaching this morning. In other words, this sermon is for all of us. We're in a church gathering. We're in a building where a church meets. And we are engaging in worship of God. And so our very text this morning is not just on what you're doing with your life. It's on what you're doing right now. 
what we're doing at this moment. I mean, how much more relevant can it get? This, for the next 40 minutes or so, God is going to be talking to us about what we're doing now. And this this morning, Solomon wants to teach us about the emptiness of just going to church. And the right way to approach God. So, we want to talk about worship that is not empty. Going to church that is not empty. So, I want to talk about three things this morning that we see in the text. Worship that is not empty is characterized by three things. And here's the first one. Humility. Humility. It's in verses 1 to 3. Let's look at those verses together. Solomon begins, Guard your steps when you go to the house of God. Just because we go to church doesn't mean we're on the right track. Because he talks about a specific way in which we are to go to church, in which we are to gather with the people of God. And he cautions us right at the beginning to guard our steps, to be careful, to be thoughtful. He doesn't want us to be scared. He wants us to be alert. He wants us to be watchful. Often the phrase guard your steps is often a reference to our conduct. It's the way we behave. In Proverbs chapter 1, verses 15 and 16, and chapter 4, verses 27, it talks about watching your path and being careful of the steps of your feet. He's encouraging us to think about what we're doing. And that's what this whole sermon is about, is to think about what we do when we gather. We're not just passing through here for a friendly chat. We're not just passing time with our friends. Solomon wants us to guard our steps. And he wants us to guard our steps specifically when we go to the house of God. Now, the house of God in Solomon's day is not the same as the house of God in our day. Let's just be clear about that. The house of God in Solomon's day was the temple. That was the place under the old covenant where God's people would gather together to hear from God and worship God. But make no mistake, there is still a house of God today. It's called the church and it's not a building. It's a people. The church has become the house of God. Believers in Jesus Christ. How do I know that? First Timothy 3.15 which, which Paul is also telling us about how we ought to behave in church when he says, I'm writing to you to tell you how one ought to conduct himself in the household of God, which is the church. It's clear. It's clear. The house of God is the church. The Bible says it. First Timothy 3.15. So we're coming to a place and gathering with a people where the almighty God is committed to stooping down and meeting with us. And Solomon says, as you do that, guard your steps. Be humble. Be careful. He unpacks what he means by humility 
in verses, the later part of verse 1 and 2 and 3. So let's look at these verses together. He says, better to draw near, verse 1, better to draw near to God. That's why we're here. Better to draw near to God in obedience than to offer the sacrifice as fools do. For they ignorantly do wrong. So we can come to church and we can unintentionally do wrong. We can behave in ignorance. We can behave in ways that God does not want us to behave or desire to behave. And when we do that, we offer a sacrifice as fools. And Solomon wants us to draw near properly, not to sacrifice as fools do, not to ignorantly do wrong, but to please God. So how do we please God? Verse 2. And here's where we see humility. Do not be hasty to speak and do not be impulsive to make a speech before God. God is in heaven and you are on earth. So let your words be few for dreams result from much work and a fool's voice from many words. Now let's just step back here and get the big picture. Okay. And not just, you know, look at the minutia here, but He says, just generally, when you come into God's house, when you gather with his church, come to listen to what God has to say to you. That's humility. That's humility. He says, come with a posture of reception. Come with a posture that's ready to receive from God, not merely with a posture to give to God. What God wants first from us is to know that as we gather together, we are having this disposition. Speak, O Lord, for your servant is listening. That's what he wants. Speak to me. I am here to listen to what you have to say to me. And that requires humility. Because, think about it, our culture does not prize or value a person standing on the stage telling a bunch of other people what to do. (laughs) Right? I mean, you have opinions. You've got contributions to make. You've got ideas. Share them. But when we come to church, God says, everybody sit down and shut up. I've got some things to tell you. And that is totally not our culture. That's rude. That's insensitive. Don't you know you can't treat people like that? It's like telling them to go over in the corner and lay down like a dog. Now, let me just say this. Take what we're doing right now. I'm speaking. You're listening. It seems wrong for one person to do all the speaking. And it is. Unless the person speaking isn't speaking for themselves. The only way it makes sense for me or anyone else to stand up here in the gathering of the church. And to be speaking is if the, if the person who is speaking is speaking on behalf of someone else who really deserves to be heard. And it's not me. 
you can take me or leave me. Really? Unless I'm up here talking about what God has just written right here, tune me out, please. And tune out everybody else. But if what I'm saying coheres and corresponds with what God wants in the, to be said from this book, then by all means pay attention. He says it three different times. He says in verse 2, don't be hasty to speak. He doesn't say don't speak. We can speak in church. We can pray prayers. We can sing songs. We can fellowship. We can talk. We can encourage one another. Oh, that's right. Talk, talk. But don't make talking the first thing. Don't be hasty to do that. Don't be impulsive to make a speech before God. He says, let your words be few. Now he gives the reason for why we ought to let our words be few. When he says, God is in heaven and you are on the earth. (laughs) He says, consider for a minute how great the distance is between God and you. He's infinite. You're not. He's been around a lot longer than you have. He made you. He made you for him and for his purposes. And he wants to address you. It's the height of arrogance to not want to listen to him. And that's why it requires humility to listen. Peter tells us that when we gather as the church to receive the implanted word with meekness, with humility, which is able to save our souls. Without the humility piece, we don't get saved. We don't hear from God. And that's why he said, and the word doesn't get implanted in us. It just goes boink and bounces right off of us. And so the posture of the heart is incredibly important. And he says, when you think about it, God is in heaven, filling the heavens with his glory, infinite, eternal, wise, holy, loving, omniscient, omnipresent, all glorious. And you are on the earth. You, singular. So let your words be few. He's arguing that the transcendence of God, the greatness and the glory of God should make us want to be quiet and listen to what God has to say. But there's another argument for why we should let our words be few, and it comes from Jesus. He takes the ideas from this text and weaves it into his own sermon on the Mount. Remember this passage, Matthew six, seven to nine says, when you are praying, do not heap up empty phrases like the Gentiles do for they think that they'll be heard because of their many words. Do not be like them for God is in heaven and you are on the earth. No, he says, Your father in heaven knows what you need before you ask him. Now that's an argument, not of transcendence, but of eminence. So let your words be few because God is great and God, your father. It's both. It's both. God is great and far from you. And God is loving and is near you. The very reasons our word should be few is because God 
is our great father in heaven who knows what we need. And doesn't that change your posture when you come to church? It should. Because you're not just here to hear from God. You are here to hear from God. But you're here to hear from your father. He wants you to sit there simply to hear from him as his child whom he loves. He doesn't not want to hear from you. He wants to hear from you. So talk to him, but talk simply with simple words, expressing simple desires with all sincerity and trust of a child approaching a father who deeply cares. And that humility, that humble posture of a child who is eager to receive what his father has to give him is the posture our God wants from us. And who doesn't want to give God that posture? I know I do. So when you come, think about the love your father has for, me, has for you and what he wants to say to you because he loves you. Doesn't that make you want to hear what he has to say? I would hope so. Second point, not only does God want you to approach him with humility, but he wants you to approach him with integrity. Integrity. Verse 4. When you make a vow to God, don't delay fulfilling it because he does not delight in fools. Fulfill what you vow. Better that you do not vow than that you vow and not fulfill it. So let's just be clear. A part of religious worship in the old covenant was making vows to God in the presence of God, among the people of God. Oftentimes in response to the word of God. A vow was sort of a conditional promise that was made to God. God, if you will do this for me, I will do this for you. And we see positive and negative examples of vows in the Bible. For instance, we see a positive example with Hannah in 1 Samuel chapter 1. And we see a negative example of Ananias and Sapphira in Acts chapter 5 where they promise to give the apostles money from a sale of property and they hold back part of it. And they say, you lied to the Holy Spirit. You had vowed to give that and God kills them on the spot. So there's, there's these positives and negatives in scripture of vows. But the point is, is that in the point of verses four and five here is that God takes our vows very seriously. The things that we say to God, the things that we pledge to God, the things that we promise to God, he takes seriously. So much so that he says in verse 5, better that you not do it than that you do it and not fulfill it. Better that you not vow than that you vow and not keep what you have vowed. And therefore, he says, he puts some rush on it. And he says, don't delay in fulfilling what you've said to do. Take it seriously. Behave with integrity. Now, have you ever made a vow to God? Well, let me give you some examples. Marriage. Marriage is a vow to God. It's a vow to that God hears and takes note of and listens to and holds us accountable for. But marriage is not the only vow that we give to God. We make vows 
consistently as the church, as part of what the church is. Think about this. When we join the church, when we become a member of a local church, we take upon ourselves vows, vows of mutual care, vows of financial support, vows of sacrifice and love and service toward the church that Jesus died to save. So those are vows. Those are commitments. We call it a church covenant. We covenant together. We make vows together to behave a certain way together that we will encourage one another, that we will not grow, that if we have a problem with one another, we'll resolve it. Do you know if you harbor bitterness in your heart towards a brother and sister and you're unwilling to resolve it, you're breaking your vow to God. If you just say, ah, we just can't get along. I'm not going to ignore it. I'm going to buy let bygone. No, no. So church membership and carries with it vows. Baptism is a vow. When we baptize people, we ask them, do you commit to, for the rest of your life, God giving you grace that you will renounce the devil in his ways and that you will commit yourself to wholehearted followership of Jesus Christ? And we say, yes. Vow. Vow. It's a vow. When we were baptized, we vowed that we would belong only and exclusively to Christ. The Lord's Supper is a vow. When we take the Lord's Supper, it's not only a pledge of God's commitment to save and sanctify and love and take us to heaven. It's also a vow on our part to belong to him and to not forsake him and to not leave him. That's why it's so grievous when the apostles leave him after the Lord's Supper. And they desert him and they break his heart. So marriage, church membership, baptism. But think how many hymns and songs that we sing that contain vows to God in them. That when we're checked out and we're not even thinking, we're making vows to God. What about this? Take my silver and my gold, not a mite would I withhold. And we vow that to God. I will ever love and trust him in his presence daily live. All the vain things that charm me most, I sacrifice them to his blood. In all I do, I honor you. I have no longings for another. I'm satisfied in him alone. Does it scare you to sing sometimes? (laughs) And the things that we tell God and the things that we say to God. I mean, it should, it should rock us to the core. The vows that we have made to God. And how a lot of the time we don't even think about them. Now, let me say this because this is, this is important. 
because I'm not trying to undermine those hymns and the things we sing. I think it's right to sing them. I think we should say all those things to God. But you and I know we're both sinners, right? So, I mean, do you ever find yourself sometimes when you're singing songs like that going, oh God, I can't sing that. I can't sing that. Or you sing it and you're immediately convicted as you sing it, right? I'm there. I'm with you. You get convicted by what you're singing. So does that mean we shouldn't sing it? No. Let me take an example, okay? This is meant to give us some comfort as this is specific application to singing songs that have vowels in them, okay? And I think this may be pastorally helpful because I'm trying to work through this too myself. All right, let's take, let's take the, the line, I have no longings for another, I'm satisfied in him alone. That's from I will glory in my redeemer, okay? And we sing that line. Now, I've been married to my wife for 10 years. And I truly love her. And I truly have no longings for another. And I am satisfied in her alone. But there are times, and she will tell you, there are times when my heart and my mind drifts. And I don't love her as passionately at that moment as I do other moments. And I get distracted. So is it wrong for me to tell her that, honey, I love you. I have no longings for another. Or should I always express my commitments to her with significant caveats and misgivings and disclaimers? Like in her Valentine's Day card, I write, honey, I love you. I long for no one else but you alone. At least I hope to someday. (laughs) But I'm not quite there yet. No, that's foolish. My expressions of commitment to my wife both express and strengthen my love for her. They remind me of my vows, of my desire to be faithful, of the superior joy I have in being her husband. But it doesn't mean at every single moment of the day that there's just welling up insurmountable passion for her. And God is the same way. How do I know that? Besides, you know, comparing the illustration to marriage or whatever. Because if you read the Psalms, either these guys are the height of hypocrites or they're onto something. Because the things they say are ridiculous. Psalm 73, 25. Whom have I in heaven but you? On earth there is nothing I desire besides you, even though I spent this whole Psalm wanting what everybody else had. Psalm 73. Really? I have, I, yeah, whatever, Asaph. Quit being a hypocrite. What about David? Psalm 34, 1. I will bless the Lord at all times. At all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth, except when I was sleeping with Bathsheba. I will bless the Lord at all times. At all times. And his praise shall continually be in my mouth. Really? You didn't talk about the game? Come on, David. Come on. I mean, the Psalms contain a number of examples of commitment, which seem to be hyperbolic, if not hypocritical. But here's the point. Those vows, those statements that they make in prayer to God, 
both strengthen and express the love they have for God. They are praying it in humble dependence upon God to give them what they ask for. They are expressing their legitimate heart's desire. All right, if God asks you all right now, do you want my praise to be continually in your mouth? Do you want to be able to bless me at all times? You say, yes, Lord, please send it, zap me. Please make me that kind of person. Do you think God is not pleased with that? Of course, but we live in the already and the not yet. We live in a time where we are freed from the power of sin, but still subject to the presence of sin. And so we are constant believers and we're constant repenters and God wants it that way. And so when we come to him, we do what Isaac Watts tells us to do, not in a hymn, but in something he wrote. He says, quote, we can never be too frequent or too solemn in the general surrender of our souls to God and binding our souls by a vow to be the Lord's forever. He says, we can never be too frequent to keep doing that. (laughs) We can never be too frequent to vow our souls to be the Lord's forever, to love him above all things, to fear him, to hope in him, to walk in his ways and to wait for his mercy to eternal life, end quote. So Watt's counsel is, Vow and keep vowing. Vow and keep vowing. And humbly repent for when you fail in your vows. And that brings us to our third point. Not only does God want humility in worship and integrity in our worship, but he wants honesty. He wants honesty. Verse 6. Do not let your mouth lead you into sin. Obviously talking about vows. Don't let the things you say lead you to sin by failing to follow through on them. And do not say before the messenger that it was a mistake. Now it's not entirely clear what the messenger or who the messenger is. It could be a messenger from the temple, a literal person that came and said, you know, checks in with uh, the people that are attending the temple and says, okay, you made a vow to the Lord maybe concerning a financial contribution or something like that or animals or whatever, and uh, you haven't kept it. You haven't followed through. So what are you going to do about that? He's like, oh, it was a mistake. I'm sorry. I shouldn't have said that. And that's what he says in verse 6 makes God angry. He says it, right? Why should God be angry at your voice and destroy the work of your hands? Verse 7, for when dreams increase and words grow many, there is vanity. But God is the one you must fear. Here's what God desires. He wants honesty. (laughs) When the messenger shows up, he didn't want the person to say, oh, it was a mistake. He wanted brokenhearted repentance. Not excuse making. Our sin makes God angry, but our failure as a loving father would be, but our failure to our, but our failure to own our sin makes God more angry because he wants honesty. Think of it as a parent, right? Nothing brings my heart greater joy than when my children own up to what they've done. That honesty 
draws my heart in love toward them. And, and I would argue it's the same way with God. God wants our honesty. He wants not us to fight and make excuses and blame shift and Or he doesn't want us to run away and find some other form of escape like these things in Ecclesiastes we've been talking about. Or he doesn't want us to beg and plead with him for another chance and promise we'll do better next time. He wants us to be honest with him. Because, as Tim Keller puts it, when we seek to cover up our sin ourselves, God is going to uncover it. But when we let God cover our sin, God will gladly cover our sin. Because it's the honesty that God is after. So he wants us to realize, you know, that we don't measure up and that we can't keep our commitments. I mean, this, this, this passage in Ecclesiastes is heavy on law. It's heavy on, this is what you ought to do. This is what you should do. This is what you must do. Do not do this. Do not do this. Do this. Don't, don't do this. And what, you're meant, what, what I'm meant to do, what you're meant to do, as we read this passage, is sit there and say, it's amazing that God hasn't killed me in a church service recently. That's where we're supposed to get. By the, we're not supposed to say, okay, yep, got that one taken care of. This passage is supposed to break us. It's supposed to say, you know what? I'm all over the place in worship. I, I can't focus. I say all kinds of things I shouldn't say when I'm singing hymns. I'm, I, I fell asleep in the prayer. I, it's hot in the room and he preaches too long. And... I had to stay up late with my youngest daughter who was crying all night. And I, I, and I've said things. I told the Lord that I would be this and I sinned in a bad way. And is there any hope for me? Yes. Yes. Yes, there is hope for us. Tullian Chavidjan says this, quote, Once we are crushed by the law, we need to be reminded of other hymns. There is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins and sinners plunge beneath that flood lose all their guilty stains. We need to be told that the sins we cannot forget, God cannot remember. And as the old hymn puts it, though the accuser roar of ills that I have done, I know them all and thousands more. Jehovah knoweth none. And we need to be told over and over that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, that nothing can separate us from God's love and that Christians live their lives under a banner that reads, it is finished. 
Now, how is that possible in light of this passage? It's because Jesus Christ fulfills this passage. And you don't believe me? I'm going to show you. I'm going to show you. We're going to turn to two spots, one in the Old Testament and one in the New Testament. And I want to show you the text that set my soul to dancing this week in light of being crushed by this text. Psalm 40. Psalm 40. Just turn back in your Bible a couple, couple pages to the Psalms and then find Psalm 40. Now, when you're, doing, when you're studying a passage and you're trying to understand what it means, it's important to find parallels Parallel passages. And by parallels, what we mean is finding passages that have the same language, that say the same kinds of things in different ways. And Psalm 40 talks about sacrifices and it talks about listening to God with humility. It's very much very similar to Ecclesiastes chapter 5. Psalm 40, verses 6 through 8. Think of how this rings true with what we've been looking at this morning. Psalm 40, verse 6. You do not delight in sacrifice and offering. You open my ears to listen. Now, the literal Hebrew is you dig out my ears. This is what God has to do for us. (laughs) God has to get inside of our brain spiritually and dig, hollow out our heads so he can pour in his truth. That's literally what it's saying. And he's saying, God, you've given me that gift. You've enabled me by your grace to want to listen to you because it takes a work of God to want to listen to God. It says you don't delight in sacrifice and offering. You open my ears to listen. You do not ask for a whole burnt offering or a sin offering. Verse 7, then I said, see, I have come. It is written about me in the volume of the scroll. I delight to do your will, my God. Your instruction lives within me. All right, so that's Psalm 40, 6 to 8. Where is Psalm 40 quoted in the New Testament? Hebrews 10. Let's look there. This very passage is opened up in Hebrews chapter 10. And as we saw in in Psalm 40, it has a lot of similarity to Ecclesiastes 5. All the way near the end of the Bible. Hebrews 10 and verse 4. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats, the sacrifices in the Old Testament, to take away sins. Therefore, verse 5, as he, or as the ESV says, consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, Psalm 40, verses 6 through 8, Sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sin offerings you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. So the writer of the Hebrews applies Psalm 40, which has very similar parallels with Ecclesiastes 5, to Jesus. 
And then he explains it for us. I love it when the Bible preaches my own sermon for me. Because now the writer to the Hebrews is going to preach the rest of the sermon. He says, next verse, when he said above, you have neither desired nor taken pleasure in sacrifices and offerings and burnt offerings and sin offerings. These are offered according to the law. Then he added, behold, I have come to do your will. Now here's the application. He does away with the first, the burnt offerings and sin offerings, in order to establish the second, that Christ has come to do the will of God and die as the ultimate sacrifice. And by that will, by Jesus' coming, living, dying, and rising, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. There it is. And when we come into God's presence, believe me, God is fully aware of that fact. (laughs) Big time. He is not looking at us as we are in our sinful, sick selves. He is looking at us in the perfect righteousness of Christ who died to sanctify us and set us apart for God and through his offering of the body of Christ once for all has fully met all the demands of God's law and satisfied all of our breaking of it. And that's the gospel. And that's why we gather for worship. Not to do religious things that give God the creeps because it nullifies the work of Christ and it spits on what Jesus did. But we come to celebrate and say, God, thank you for sending your son to live according to your will. That he can say with absolute honesty, absolute integrity, and absolute humility. It was written of me in the scroll of the book. I have come to do your will, O God. And oh, believe me, I have done it. Everything that you have required of me, I have done. Look at my life. Cast sin, God, if you can, or cast a stone, God, if you can find any sin in your son whatsoever to be accused of. And God finds none. And that's our Savior. And therefore, as we approach God, Sunday after Sunday, gathering in his presence for worship, we come humble, relying exclusively on the work of Jesus Christ. We come with integrity that we really need him. (laughs) And that we're striving by grace to walk in a manner worthy of the gospel, which means not a perfect walk, not a sinless walk, but an authentic, broken, humble, trusting walk where when we sin, we confess our sins and we trust in the blood and righteousness of Christ. And then we're honest. We come here knowing we're a bunch of broken, messed up people who need grace every single moment of our lives. And God looks at us and he says, those people fear me. And you know what the Psalms talk about with the fear of the Lord? The friendship of the Lord is with those who fear him. Or Psalm 33, 18, behold, the eye of the Lord is on those who fear him, who hope in his steadfast love. You ever heard that definition of the fear of God? You hope in the steadfast love of God. That's the fear of God. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love toward those who fear him. 
The steadfast love of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting on those who fear him. As a father shows compassion on his children, so the Lord shows compassion on those who fear him. Psalm 147.11, for the Lord takes pleasure in those who fear him. When we fear God, when we hope in his steadfast love, when we show up here week in and week out, sinners though we be, saved by the grace of Jesus, what's God's posture towards us? I love those kids. I'm ready to have compassion on those kids. They're my friends. As high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is my love toward them. I take pleasure in them because they fear me, because they count my son valuable. They don't spit on him. They don't think that what I did in him was nothing. It was of no value. That's the fear of God. The fear of God means to stand in awe of what God has done. It means to revere him and treasure what he has done for us. That's the fear of the Lord. The fear of the Lord is not running scared from God. Somebody need to put the fear of God in that boy. He needs to start running. That's not the fear of God. The fear of God is being so overwhelmed with the greatness and the glory of God that you commit yourself in loving trust to him. That's the fear of the Lord all over the Bible. And that's the kind of heart and the kind of disposition that we have, brothers and sisters, because of God's work in our lives. So we can approach God, get rid of religion. Let's come here and let's pursue God. Let's rest in God. Let's hear from God. And let's respond to God. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this passage of scripture, which both lays us low and lifts us high. It lays us low in ourselves. It lays us low in relationship to our performance for you, but it lifts us high when we look to the performance of another. When we see that Jesus Christ himself is the one who has fulfilled Ecclesiastes five to seven and his righteousness has been given to us. Therefore, when Hebrews 2.12 says, in the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. It's Jesus' praise that counts. It's Jesus' praise of you, Father, that counts for us. His perfect praise. And therefore, we can bring our imperfect praise and have it all cleansed through him and enjoyed by you to the fullest. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Please stand and sing.